ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. I got the chance to hang with Ashley Eve and talk all things taxidermy from full mount artistry to beetles and how to euro mount. Okay, everybody, today I've got Ashley Eve with me. Um, She's a taxidermist at Racks and Tracks Taxidermy in Northern California, and I am super excited to have you on. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited, too. Well, give us a little bit of background on you and who you are and um, kind of how you were first inspired into outdoors, hunting, fishing, all of that kind of stuff. So a little bit of background on me. I grew up in the country. I grew up on property. Uh, My dad hunted a little bit. I rode horses growing up. Um, So I was always kind of involved in the outdoors. I never really got into hunting, though. Mm -hmm. Um, I got into hunting when I had kind of just first turned 18. Um, That was that was when I really first got into it. Um, I did like 4-H and FFA growing up, so I was always raising animals. Um, We always had our own animals that we would raise and butcher ourselves. So when I finally turned 18, I was like, okay, I'm taking my own initiative. This is what I want to do. It's the first thing I did as an adult. Yeah. So I got my hunter safety. I got my hunting license and I shot my first year as soon as I was 18. That's Um, amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Like within the first week of turning 18. And so I was hooked like that totally kind of launched me into the outdoors and the hunting, all that. What, um, so my nieces have been involved in 4-H their entire lives. I grew up in a little town 
in West Tennessee where 4-H was huge. Um, I think one of the guys in my science class, one of his presentations was how to castrate a cow. Um, So we kind of probably both, I didn't grow up in 4-H, but I grew up with it all around me. And what an amazing program. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I couldn't have asked for a better like program growing up. It was perfect. It is. It is such a great program. And I think, um, it gets recognition in those kind of towns. Um, and I think it gets a little bit more recognition out of those towns, but not as much as I feel like it should. I think it does so much for kids growing up, um, in, in animal life and in science and in, I mean, there's just so much within 4-H that, um, a kid can grow in. Totally. I think I almost take it for granted how great of an opportunity that was just to get me out, to get me involved with animals. And, um, there's so much to it too. There's just leadership and responsibility so much that you can learn through 4-H and especially I, I raise a lot of animals through 4-H too. So that really got me like, kind of real world experience just you know you're we're raising animals and these animals are going to be eaten right and that's kind of the purpose there like that really kind of got me involved with like you know that's where our food comes from right I've, I've been to a couple of auctions I've been to the um especially for my nieces and it's just I mean it just shows the full circle of what it should be um and how farm life, even if you don't live on a farm, you can still be involved in 4-H and get the experience that you want out of it. Yeah, there are so many opportunities through 4-H. And it's not just animals. Like I, for example, really kind of only did the animal thing. But there's so many different avenues that you could take through 4-H too. So definitely if it's an option, I would 100% encourage anyone to do 4-H if that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, uh, what was it that I was trying to think just a second ago, we had, um, uh, my nieces had rabbits and chickens and, um, mainly those two things. And the first time my kids went to one of their 4-H things, they went, wait, they're selling they're, they're auctioning off the animals. They don't keep them. They're not pets. And I went, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, there might be some maybe that don't, you know, um, sign up for that part of it. But, um, but our nieces, when they kept them, they still kept them for me. They were um, – that was the full circle of it. And I think that was my kid's first introduction into seeing that other than us hunting, um, seeing a different side of it. So it was really neat. I, I have grown up appreciating, um, that community tremendously. Right. Cause yeah, it's like, you know, unless you're really involved in that, you may not realize exactly like, Oh, like these aren't just pets. They're, they're livestock. That's Mm -hmm. kind of a disconnect there. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Okay. So you started hunting at 18, um, and you got your first deer. Was it a buck or a doe? It was a buck. It was like, I mean, a T 
teeny little buck. It was maybe barely legal. But, um, you were proud of it. But I was so proud. And yeah. I think I was mostly proud that, like, I was taking my own initiative. Like, I did, like, I really pushed myself to do that. Um, and it was successful there. So, I mean, I was, I was just hooked after that. It was probably the coolest thing I'd I thought I'd ever done up to that point. Did you have any mentors that were kind of guiding you through it or were you just kind of on your own? A little bit. Um, like my dad, so he was into firearms and he had hunted a little bit too, but not that much. Mm-hmm. So he helped me, like he kind of pushed me to do it. And he was there when I shot it too. And then one of his friends was helping too. So I did have some people there helping me, you know, physically get the deer. Right. But it's, um, as far as just like wanting to do it, nobody ever pushed me to do it. I had to push myself to get into it. Right. Um, I started a little bit later in life, not as a kid hunting. And so um, I kind of was right there too. There was a lot of my own initiative, my own push, my own drive. Um, and I hunted by myself and I, there was just this sense of pride behind it, um, a sense of accomplishment, but also a, a sense of independence in being able to um, to do something like that. But a whole lot of pride, a whole lot of excitement in that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, like it, it's just a whole range of emotions, especially if you're you know, lucky enough to be successful and just yeah that independence that pride and then you're a provider you're you know doing something that not a lot of people get an experience to do 100 percent truth i was telling that to my son today um we were talking about going hunting saturday and um and i said well buddy do you have anybody in your class um that you know who goes hunting he goes no um he said, I've got a friend who has a BB gun that they go target shooting. And I go, oh. okay, that's great. Um, and he, I said, he hasn't, he hasn't harvested a deer yet. Um, and I said, well, when you get your first deer, um, are you going to go to school and tell it? He goes, heck yeah, I am. <laughs> oh, that's cool. He's excited. He's excited. Um, and I said, How I old think is he? he's nine. Um, And I think that no matter what age you are, accomplishing that first, you know, the first step of getting out there, um, the first step of, of being out there is huge. Not even like seeing a deer is extremely huge. And then harvesting a deer, it kind of brings all that hard work to fruition and it's exciting. So seeing him excited for it kind of takes me back to when I shot my first deer and it, it brings a whole lot of memories and pride back into it. Oh, so that's cool. You get to kind of relive it a little bit through him. It's his total excitement. You get to kind of absorb that too. Yes. It's so true. Um, so I'm excited about that, but, um, but yeah, I didn't know if, as you were starting to hunt, if you fell into anything, I don't know from anybody around you, um, where it was kind of a struggle to get started into it, or if you just kind of bruised your way through it? Um, I don't think it was necessarily a struggle to get into it, but um, I think I did have to really decide, like, I want to do this, so I got to be a little bit ruthless about it. Mm-hmm. 
And then I was fortunate enough to have people in my life that hunted. And also um, I shot that deer on my parents' property too. So we had property that we lived on that I was able to hunt on, which that's a huge advantage. Yes. It's a, there is an advantage and a blessing to be able to start somewhere that's familiar. Absolutely. That's, I'm so, so thankful for that. I don't know if I would have even really got into hunting if it weren't for being able to live on that land and be so familiar with it already before I even decided to start hunting. It can almost be um, intimidating, um, without that we've oh for sure for sure (laughs) we I started hunting on a piece of property that my husband already knew and so it it became familiar quickly and then night before opening day this year we had a surprise conversation happen with the owners um where they weren't comfortable with the kids hunting on the property and that's perfectly fine it's their their choice, their 100% respect, their choice on that. But, um, we ventured into the public land, um, hunting arena and man, it was intimidating at first. And it still has its moments of stepping outside of a comfort zone. Um, and I can't imagine people do it all the time, but I can't imagine getting started as a solo hunter, on a piece of property that was not familiar to me. Right. That would be so hard. I know even when I go to hunting properties or even public land that I don't know really anything about, it's intimidating. Yeah. And it can be confusing and maybe even discouraging if you're not seeing what you want to see. But... Yeah, it's just, you know, it's part of the whole thing, too. It's everyone feels that way, I'm sure. Like every hunter gets that feeling yeah. from time to time. Yeah. So it's just kind of knowing that it's part of the part of the game. <laughs> Completely true. Completely true. And I think that if we don't challenge ourselves in it, you're you're going to get complacent, but you're also going to lose that feeling of pushing yourself into something um, to grow. Um, which isn't comfortable at the beginning. Um, but then you look back and you go, why was I, why was I intimidated by it? Look at where I am now. Um, absolutely. I love a challenge too. (laughs) I, I love moving forward. I don't like moving backward or staying where I am. I always love moving into a goal that I have. And so, um, but taking that first step can be, I can shake through that first step just a little bit. Um, I, and then I plant that foot and I don't look back. Um, and I bet that's kind of how I know it was with me getting started hunting, taking that first step, signing up for hunter's education. I was the only girl in my hunter's education class. Um, and so it was each step had this little intimidation marker that I had to kind of push through. Let me ask you um, how you got started into taxidermy. So how I got started into taxidermy, um, what I was originally going to do as like a job or a career after high school, I was thinking I was going to be a vet tech because I was already on that animal 
path. Yeah. Um, I kind of abandoned that idea. Not really my thing. It was too, like, I guess serious for me. I'm, I'm kind of artistic. I wanted to be more creative. Mm -hmm. So, um, I ended up shooting a bear in 2014. I was 19 and the taxidermist that we had used, he knew I was kind of into taxidermy. He's like, Hey, if you want to mount this thing with me, I can show you what to do. We can mount it together and I will give you like a price break on it. And I can show you a little bit more about taxidermy. We can work together on it. So that was my first introduction literally into taxidermy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after that, I was pretty hooked on it too. Like I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever done. And I kind of just got the ball rolling from there. Um, I mean, I was always like really into animals and just being kind of artistic that kind of just fell into place. Like, oh, I could do taxidermy. So how I really started getting into it, um, I was looking into taxidermy schools. Mm -hmm. They're... um, they were a little bit expensive. Uh, and so I was, I kind of put that on the back burner for a little bit, but then in summer of 2016, I actually ended up going to a taxidermy school. I went up to a school in Montana mm-hmm. and it was a couple month course and just kind of a quick introduction. We did all kinds of stuff. We did, you know, mammals, fish, birds. I think it was like nine mounts total or 10 mounts. Um, quick introduction with it. And, Going into it, I was like, okay, well, either I'm going to do this as a job or I'm just going to be able to do my own mounts just by learning how to do this stuff. Um, And so I kind of dabbled with it a little bit, not really serious about it after that. But then I ended up moving back to California. And in 2018, I was, um, I started working for Racks and Tracks Taxidermy and I've been with them ever since and just kind of growing from there just being getting more comfortable with it like realizing like okay I want to do this like this is the job I want to have this is like what I want to stick to like it's it kind of just snowballed like I almost think it kind of like like it fell into place a little bit like all these opportunities that I was able to get just I didn't really um I mean, I struggled too, but it just, I was pretty fortunate in all these opportunities that I've had in order to be where I am now. When it clicked, all those things came together. All the passions that you have kind of came together and, and fed into your soul probably. And yeah, exactly. And it fit fit perfectly. Um, I, so my husband's a biologist. He's, he, um, graduated with, uh, he's an animal science major, wildlife and fisheries, all of that kind of stuff. I remember when I met him, he was learning all the birds and the parts of birds and sounds of birds. And it was all about the birds at the time. Um, and he, (laughs) the first day I met him, I walked into his apartment and there were skulls everywhere. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, I'm talking deer skulls all the way down to mice. And, um, I mean, I couldn't even tell you what all he had and they were all just laid out on shelves and over the mantle. And I mean, that was 
that was what he loved. That was what, you know, the science of animals was his thing. And I walked in at that point in time, not knowing anything about any of that. And I thought, this man is crazy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) This man is crazy. And now I have skulls of my own on the wall. And, um, it has been a fun process with him. But when I told him I was having a conversation with you tonight, he was like, can I be in there? <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> can I listen in? I think he's really excited about, um, about hearing this conversation because he, he gets it. He probably has tons of questions that he'd love to ask you too, but it's me that gets to talk to you. Um, <laughs> Awesome. That's so cool. That's- it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun that the kids get to kind of grow up in it too and get to learn, you know, how do you age a deer by the teeth and how do you like all of these different things that you get to learn from, from these skulls. It's just, it's amazing when you look through, um, the science of it, but, um, I want to hear, I mean, Truly, this conversation, I just want to hear how do you do it? How do you do this? How do you do that? Because I as a hunter and I'm sure other hunters out there, especially new hunters or hunters who haven't um, necessarily harvested certain animals, but they're going to want a shoulder mount or a full mount. Like what, what are the things that you would tell hunters Hey, you have to do this in order for a mount to be the best that you want it to be. Oh, perfect. So, you know, I, first of all, I just feel like fortunate. I feel lucky enough to just be able to answer the questions that you may have too. So I know when I first started hunting, I really didn't know much about the taxidermy side of it too. And I, I remember trying to cape off a deer for the first time and I totally messed it up I had no idea what I was doing um but I think for anyone wanting to get something mounted if you're gonna go with any you know thought in your mind like okay if I kill something I may want to get it mounted I think you should really kind of do a little bit of research beforehand maybe just kind of have a plan um if you want to get something like, let's say just a deer shoulder mount, maybe just have an idea of where to cut the skin or, you know, how much skin to leave. Um, there's a lot of good resources like through YouTube and, uh, just the internet in general to kind of give you an idea on, you know, just how to get that skin. Like, you know, you want it to be, the best it can be as well. Just kind of, I would say, treat it like the meat. Like you don't want to leave it out in the sun or anything like that. That's number one, I would think. Yeah. Um, And then definitely just leaving enough of that skin on there too. I think the number one problem that we have of people when they bring in animals is just not leaving enough of the hide attached. And so that's a huge thing too. Like you just want to make sure that you are leaving as much as possible or if you kind of know how much to leave just to leave enough of that skin and hide attached because we can't add anything we can always subtract so those are the two major things just to treat it like the meat and then just to know where to cut or how much to cut off that kind of thing um and also before 
going hunting, maybe have an idea of what you'd I like realistically want to get mounted. Like if you're going on a once in a lifetime, you drew this tag for like, you know, this, let's say a sheep, something like that. And you know, you want to get this thing life-size mounted. Well, that's a totally different cut. So you kind of want to know what you're doing, getting into it. Like, you know, where I need to cut this thing um, to be able to do that kind of mount. So just kind of having a plan beforehand is super important as well. I'm sure that if you had clients (laughs) go, Hey, Ashley, how I have, I'm shooting a deer and I want to make your job the easiest possible (laughs) on this deer. And I want it to look great and I want it to be perfect. And I want it to be, um, a glorious reminder of this hunt where do I cut the hide? Like for you personally, as a taxidermist, do you like it back lower than the shoulders or like, what is your perfect? If somebody were to deliver it to you and you would go, you cut that perfectly. Thank you. So specifically on that, like if somebody is shooting a deer and the way that I want to see it brought in, if for example, you cut the body of that deer in half, mm-hmm. like if you could imagine, um, just sort of half between the front of the brisket and the back of the rump, just sort of in half. Yes. Everything in that half forward, I would say leave on, especially if, I mean, that's a little more than extra, but we'd rather have extra than oh, not yeah. enough. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, so leave definitely like half of that body forward. And then going at the, I guess you would say they're the elbow, the knee joints in the front mm-hmm. legs, that deep as well. So leaving half the body, half the leg, everything, you know, in that corner of the deer yeah. attached. So then from there, um, if a person splits the legs or if they leave them too, that's kind of not really it doesn't really matter exactly. Um, but then um, what does matter too is that um, if you want to keep that whole hide attached, mm-hmm. um, like you can skin it down over the head like a tube and then leave that whole neck attached or you can slice it down the neck, um, directly down the neck. That's kind of... Um, that's a little bit irrelevant too. I guess the biggest thing would be to cut it off right at the base of the neck and bring us the head. Because, you know, a lot of people, they may know how to cape off the head, but ideally we would do that part just to ensure that we're leaving enough of around the eyes and around the lips and that we're taking it off the skull the way we prefer to. Right. So basically just leaving enough of the hide on and then bringing that whole skull to us. Yeah. Um, as far as the skin goes, if you don't put any holes in that cape or in that skin, that would be perfect. Cause that's a lot less sewing for me to do. Yeah. <laughs> we can fix pretty much any hole, but if there's no holes, that's just, you know, icing another. on the cake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just try to be really careful. Like don't get any holes. Um, a lot of things that I see is that people tend to leave like um, 
maybe kind of big pieces of meat on the skin too. And that's not that big of a deal, but it is better if you leave the meat with the body and just get as close to that um, skin as possible when you're skinning it off. Just kind of leaving it like just the skin yeah. itself. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, keeping it cold and like, you know, try not to get it very bloody if you can avoid it. And then also, um, you know, you don't want to really get it too wet either because um, moisture equals bacteria and bacteria right. equals rotting. So um, just keeping it dry and cold and then keeping it clean. You know, if, if you have the head, you just took it off the body. Okay, cool. Um, I'm just going to take it to the taxidermist after, but then you set it in the ground and it gets full of leaves and dirt. Yeah. I don't like that either. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much easier if it keeps really clean too. So, um, you know, just kind of imagine like, you know, you want to keep it cool. You want to keep it clean Dry. and ideally no holes in it, but yeah. of course I can sew any holes too. So <laughs> that's not huge, but, um, I do have another recommendation too, yes. just for anybody, like, especially if you're going on like an out of state hunt, um, or if you're just going like on a backpacking hunt, that kind of thing. Um, or just for anybody, I definitely recommend that everybody may learn to cape the skin off the head. Of course I said that we would rather do that, but there's a lot of circumstances where right. the, yeah, the hide has to be off the head before it can even, you know, get to us. So I definitely encourage people to learn how to do that too. Um, you know, again, there's a lot of the good like YouTube resources on that kind of thing, or even taking it to your taxidermist or taking it to us and we can show you how to take the skin off the head too. Cause there is little tricks to do that, that, I mean, they're kind of hard to explain unless you see it done in right. person too. Right. So I'm, that's, a, um, I'm a visual learner. So that would, yeah. <laughs> it is much easier to watch. Like I like to learn by looking. I like to teach by showing and it makes it a lot easier for me. Definitely. I think I'm absolutely the same way. I'm definitely a visual learner. Mm -hmm. um, and so until I really personally like skinned out animals myself and caped them off the head, I had no idea what I was doing. And so when I first started, I definitely made tons of holes and I cut so many things. Like I made a lot of mistakes there too. Um, but I mean, I definitely encourage anybody just to maybe either practice if you aren't getting a mount um, or a skin mounted, mm -hmm. maybe just to practice on that or to have somebody show you. But I definitely think that's important for anybody um, to know how to do, especially for circumstances where you have to have that skin off the head. Right. Because um, well, I know coming into California, I think you can't have the spine attached or the brain has to come out or yep. both there's some you know rules beyond that and then I know with like the CWD mm -hmm. thing going on that's kind of a huge deal too so sometimes that has to be done so I encourage everyone to learn that yeah we've got uh, CWD in the western part of our state so if I were to hunt where my family is um I would a, have to find a taxidermist there. I would not um, 
be able to take that out of those counties without the hide being completely tanned um, or removed off of, I think it has to be completely tanned, um, but you can't take brain matter, spinal, like nothing. Um, your amounts have to be completely done um, before you take them out of the county. Um, oh, wow. There's a, there are a lot of rules. The meat can go as long as bones aren't attached. Um, there's There are a lot of strict rules that go on with that. And I believe in them 100% because we don't want it spreading. Um Totally. I, I totally understand why those things happen, like why those rules are there. Um, but yeah, yep. that's just kind of the world we live in that we got to do that. But it's all for the greater good, it's you know, true. of the populations. Um, but I guess in kind of a good way, it kind of forces people to, you know, be a little more mindful and then also maybe even learn how to keep out the deer themselves because they have to. So. Yep. Yep. I agree. Okay. Your amounts. I am a sucker for Euro mounts. Um, I think they're beautiful. <laughs> we we have four um, off of the bucks that we have gotten over the past couple of years, and we have done them ourselves. And it has not been an easy <laughs> because it has been a learn as we go situation. Um, we love them and they're beautiful, but. Um, we do the whole boiling and cleaning out and the painstaking process of, of all of that. You use beetles, which is amazing to me. The beetles are so cool. They definitely make things so much easier. Because um, I used to do the boiling thing, too. I used to boil all my own skulls and... Man, now that I have beetles, it's like, how can I ever go back to boiling? Because <laughs> they do make it so much nicer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they come with their own, like, you know, pros and cons, too. But definitely, you know, with how many skulls that I do, beetles are so nice. They're so cool. Um, I, yeah, I can't, you know, be more thankful for having those little guys. They're they're cool, and they're just kind of cool to have anyway, just to see what they do because yeah. they eat all the meat off these skulls. They're kind of incredible. Just they're amazing what they do and how well they kind of clean up the skull. Um, how they, long does it take? So that's probably the question I get asked the most: how long it takes. <laughs> but you know, it kind of depends on it, the beetles themselves a little bit. Just. Um, kind of the temperature and the humidity in there sometimes they really get going sometimes they're slower so it takes anywhere from you know I've had a deer cleaned in like two days or I've had them take like almost two weeks to clean a deer so um it kind of depends on what they got going on you know they're <laughs> depends they're on their animals mood. themselves <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah um you know I'm still trying to figure them out too trying to, trying to figure out like you know what makes them thrive the best that mm-hmm. kind of thing um but yeah, so I, I typically say it, it takes about a week for them to totally clean a deer skull out. And that's and that's typically on the, um, you know, the conservative side, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, they're pretty good. <laughs> they can do a couple skulls in about a week, too. But that's man, they amazing. are so cool. My um, husband says we're going to get some beetles for the next one. And I went, and where do you want to keep this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, mm-hmm. you know. 
that's a big question to ask too. Like, where are they going to go? Because they're meeting beetles, so they're yeah. kind of, you know, <laughs> you can't just have them sort of, you know, mm-hmm. loose that kind of thing. Um, yeah, they not do, in the kitchen, <laughs> right? Definitely not. And no. I, I don't really recommend in a in your house either. No. Um, they do kind of smell a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're eating meat, so right. how could they not have right. a little bit of an odor? Um, and then the meat itself off the skull, if they don't eat it within a few days, it kind of smells a little bit too. Yeah. So they yeah. do come with an odor. They can be a little bit finicky, but usually they're pretty low maintenance. Um, I personally have my beetles in a big um, chest freezer that's not working. So I use just the box of a chest freezer and that's what they live in. Um and I have like a little heater in there for them. I attach some vents in there too. So it's just like a big souped up box. That That's nice. <laughs> That's really nice. Um, and then once they get, once they clean, I mean, they do brain matter and everything, right? Oh yeah. They get everything, everything. every little piece of meat. Um, sometimes they'll leave like, you know, just some meat here and there. And if it's enough that I can just kind of, you know, pick it off, then I, I don't really care for them to eat every little detail I can do that so I take the skull out um they get all the meat but then I still have to degrease and whiten the skull so when it comes out of the beetles it still looks kind of like a you know discolored like pink bloody skull like a dead head yeah it's yeah exactly yeah so they're really nice for getting all that meat off, which is definitely probably the hardest part. But mm-hmm. then, of course, I still have the challenge of you know, cleaning it up. So, um, oh, my gosh, they are so cool. I definitely recommend them for anybody who is into Euro mounts. If you do more than a few a year, I think they would probably be worth it. Yeah. Um, we There are a couple of different ways that we have bleached ours we've we've used a couple of different solutions dipped that we've dipped them in um being very careful of the antlers uh we've used paste like what is your favorite way um so my favorite way i definitely have a few different methods and i still kind of experiment with methods too i don't have anything like down to the teeth on how i do things but typically um and I put them in the beetles, of course. After the beetles, I degrease them. I use like Dawn soap and OxyClean. I let them um, sit in the sun a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple different methods there, but as far as whitening them, I always use, uh, I think it's 40% peroxide or it's 40% by volume peroxide. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's the hair peroxide with a big yeah. 40 on it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I always use. I use that 50-50 in water, and that's what I use for every skull. Um, the little skulls that I have, like if it's you know a coyote or smaller, I just let it soak in that 100% 40 by volume peroxide. I don't dilute it 50% with water. Gotcha. And that seems to work pretty good, too. Yeah. Um, um, so the peroxide, and then just letting it sit in the sun a little bit too for just a couple days that sun really draws out a lot of like the um you know maybe not so much the oils but it really just kind of brightens it up too yep my husband brought home a possum skull one time that he found on the side of the road um it was i think it had 
partially been in water. I mean, it is the nastiest thing I have smelled ever. And he brought it home. This was before we got married. He brought it back and he said, oh, I need to, I need to boil this and get it cleaned off and that kind of thing. I was like, okay, um, not inside. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to boil it. So he got his charcoal Weber grill and stuck a pot on top of it and boiled it in our condo area that thing smelled up the whole neighborhood it was i was so embarrassed and at the same time he was so excited to get it done (laughs) it was um i think there are definitely you know you see pictures out on on instagram or facebook or whatever you hear these stories of people coming home and um and cooking these skulls in the kitchen and the whole house reeks, um, depending on how long you've let it go. And, uh, you can't get that smell. It does not come out easily. Um, no, no. I've, I've never done one in the kitchen before. I've definitely done them outside, like uh-huh. front yard or the backyard. And man, you get some crazy looks from neighbors. You do. Yes. I, I'm totally that way though. Like I've always been just kind of like, Oh, well I'm, I'm cleaning the school. Oh, well, you, you know? just wave. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but actually I'm not that sorry. No, we, we've got some, some wonderful neighbors right now who are vegans and I'm sure that they have seen us boiling um, our deer heads on the back porch and I'm sure that they they still love us but I'm sure that it shocks them every single time they see it oh yeah I'm sure they just they may not even be able to comprehend like (laughs) what are you doing (laughs) they're super sweet I think that they they love us well, um, because they have never brought it up ever. Um, but it has been going through the process of it. I've noticed, of course, it's much easier if it's fresh. We've had to freeze some, um, over a certain amount of time and then start on the process. And that turned out to be a little bit more difficult than we thought it was going to be. How so after you froze it, what did you... Um, I think the difficulties were, um, we didn't want to stick it straight into boiling water because we still had to skin it. And so going from frozen to, we needed to thaw it for a little bit in order to get the skin off and the flies, we live in a kind of in a country area cows are over the hill and so the flies just migrated to our backyard um as soon as we could get the skin off everything was fine but just that process of going from freezer to the boiling water i think that's where our most difficult time has been yeah because especially if you leave the hide on before you put it in the freezer yeah it's hard to get that hide off unless it's totally thought out. Yep. I definitely know how that goes because yeah. I do a lot of that too. And I get a little impatient, like, oh, I can start skinning it. Well, nope, no. I gotta wait. No, there's no fast process on that. <laughs> no, there's definitely a sit around and wait kind of game there, especially, you know, skulls in general. I think a lot of it, like, just is having patience. That's mm-hmm. kind of the name of the game for skull cleaning. 
Yep. Um, and then making sure, I think the other thing was making sure that we didn't boil it too long because we did have one skull that we had to glue, um, glue seams that had popped open. We had to kind of glue those back together. Um, but I think that was it. That was, I think the only other issue was making sure the antlers stay above the whitening solution. Cause you can bleach those suckers quickly. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I definitely, yeah, have gotten a little bit cl- too close with antlers before. Mm-hmm. But I think, too, boiling can be really um, kind of finicky with skulls. Like, if you're boiling stuff, you got to be really careful yeah. because it's really easy to go too long. Um, I personally, because I use the beetles, I don't have to boil skulls at all. Even when I whiten them, degrease them, I try never to get anything above a boiling point. Because even though I do use hot water, I never use boiling because that can break down the skull a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like you said, they kind of start to split and um, they sort of fall apart a little bit, too, especially, um, you know, if you're just letting that thing boil for hours and hours, like it can really do some damage. Um, But, yeah, definitely if you're boiling, just keeping an eye on it, like pulling it out every so often and checking it. Yeah. Yeah. but really, you know, it's not like you're going to do too much damage. It's, as long as it's not falling apart on you, then yeah. you probably haven't gone too overboard. Um, but And then also, just kind of something I thought of too, first goals, um, maybe a little off topic, but I always hear people like saying, oh, I, yeah, I bleached it. Or like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I'm soaking it in bleach. Well, just bleach as a chemical will just Mm-mm. soak into that bone yeah and yeah. just it will damage that skull permanently and it will continue to break down even after it's already completed just having that bleach inside of it so never ever use bleach um yeah. even though people say i bleached the skull or even maybe i say sometimes that i bleached it that's not what you mean. mean it's not real bleach <laughs> yeah i don't mean bleach um so that's definitely a huge no-no if you ever hear somebody you know saying that they're using bleach you can definitely correct them on that I think I've heard I've definitely we have used peroxide I've heard borax um I think those are the two that I've heard but we've just always used I think we've done the 50 50 peroxide and um and water yeah, that's, I think that's my go-to, too. Um, I've done the borax. I've done it in a couple different other methods, too. And that peroxide just seems to work, you know, pretty much every time, like, and pretty successfully. I definitely recommend the peroxide over anything else for whitening. I think you um, get a, a prettier white um, with I the peroxide. I think so, too. Yeah. Um, and then we, we had one that didn't go all the way down, and so we did make a little bit of a paste for the tippy top. Um, just because we didn't want to sacrifice the antlers and it turned out perfectly fine, but, um, we were a little worried there for a bit, um, wanting to make sure everything looked uniform. Yeah. Pastes are good too. I, um, I know there's kind of like, there's a ton of different methods, but I've done the paste thing. I don't usually do that. It's not really my preferred method, but it's a super good method for 
like whitening skulls too is just making a paste with either like peroxide or even like a little bit of borax too mm-hmm. that's a super good method to yeah. especially like you said whiten the top of the skull where you can't really you know submerge that completely in water yep um we've got i mean like i said we've got tons of skulls in this house most of them are contained to the office um the the deer skulls are mounted in the den and we get a lot of compliments on them um, when people walk in just because we had one taxidermist do – we had a taxidermist do one, and then we did the other three, and truly you can't tell the difference. And so I think my husband finds a little bit of pride in that, that nobody can really tell the difference in them. Um, but I will tell you there was uh, there was a sense of – um, excitement that somebody else was doing that. If we had beetles, I think it would just be so much easier, but that brain matter is so hard to get out without yeah. beetles. Oh yeah. I, I, you know, reminiscing on when I used to boil schools too, just some of those little tight areas, like getting the brain out and, um, around like the nasal cavities yes. too. When you guys do your skulls, do you remove all those bones within the nasal cavity or do you try to leave them in? We try to leave as much as possible. We use teeny tiny needle nose pliers. We, um, we've we had friends who have said, oh, you can pressure wash um, brain material out, but that scares the crap out of me um, because I don't want to damage the bone. Yeah, I've... I've done a little bit of pressure washing on schools too, and it is like, you know, it makes me nervous too. Yeah. I prefer not to. Yeah. Um, it it kind of then, makes me weak in the knees, like, oh, please be careful if you're going to do that. <laughs> right. Like one swipe and you could, you know, take a nostril off or something like yes. that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it certainly can be tedious if you're you know, manually getting all that meat off and just kind of picking it, picking the meat off too. That can get really tedious mm-hmm. and you know, you can even damage bone doing it that way if you're not just, you know, perfectly careful with it. So that can get really difficult. So and you should have a lot of pride doing it yourself because it's not easy to do. No, it's not. I'm, I am very grateful for the amount of patience <laughs> that it takes. Um, it's definitely a gift uh, of love when somebody does that for you. Um, but yeah, I can, I mean, going back to your desire... Um, and passion for both the artistry of it and the animal side of it. I mean, you're working so hard to make these animals come to life, come back to life in your art Um, for clients, for yourself. You, um, I've noticed some of the things that you've worked on and it just amazes me that it goes from what I have seen when I've harvested an animal, that animal loses life. The life goes out of it. But when they have come back from taxidermist, they look alive again. It's amazing to me. Yeah, definitely the whole process. It still amazes me too, just how, you know, I can turn this animal from being alive to like looking back alive, like, you know, somewhere in that, like some kind of magic happens and it becomes alive looking again. It really is kind of an incredible process. And I think, you know, obviously that's kind of like what's 
what made me really interested in taxidermy too was just the beauty of the animal and being able to recreate that. Um, that's just, yeah, it's incredible. And then knowing all the steps in the process too, it, it still blows my mind how I'm able to do this and how I can turn this, you know, flesh into something on the wall that looks mm -hmm. like how it was. It really is like an incredible process. It's still to, it still amazes me now, even though I do it. Yeah. What's your favorite part and what's your least favorite part? Oh, gosh. Good question. Um, some of my favorite parts are, well, I like when it first comes in, I like to skin it off the head. I think just because I really like skinning animals anyway. I think yeah. maybe because that's kind of how I first really, I guess, practiced and got into it. Like I was always skinning animals out. Um, and so now that I'm, I think I'm pretty good at it. It's, it's really fun to do. And like, I know what I'm doing and I really enjoy that part. Um, the confidence behind it. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. I think confidence is just, that's so huge. Um, it's huge for anything, but especially I think for what I'm doing. So that's probably one of my favorite parts. I like doing that. I also like when we first put the skin back on the mannequin mm -hmm. and it's starting to kind of finally look alive. That's one of my favorite parts <clears> too. <throat> and that requires some of that, you know, artistic and creativeness. Um, that's when that really kind of shows because otherwise it's pretty straightforward. Like you're you know, tanning it and that's, you know, there's really only one way to do it. But when you're actually putting that skin back on the mannequin that's when you can really like you know you're making that deer look alive and you mm -hmm. have to you're doing that like I'm doing that it's yeah that that requires a little more artistic ability mm -hmm. um so those are my probably two favorite parts of it um another cool part that I like is just kind of seeing the differences like all these deer they're so different from one another so it's really cool to see just how unique every single animal is even though they may look the same all of them are so completely different yeah um, and so i love that part too that's but cool and then your least the, <laughs> my least favorite parts about it um or my least favorite parts about the process uh specifically something about the ears right before we mount it I I do not like doing that part. Like, I don't like making it's the earbud part, like, that kind of connects to the head. For some reason, I just really don't like doing that. Um, <laughs> that's probably, like, that sticks out in my head. It's my least favorite part. Um, I guess there's a couple other parts that I'm not huge on. I, I don't really like doing um, some of the finish work. I don't really like doing it, I think, because it's kind of like... I mean, I already mounted this animal. I want it to be done with. I don't want to yeah. know, keep doing these little tiny details. So some of that I don't really enjoy, but also I do. But, man, something about those ears, I just do not like them. <laughs> those are my least favorite part. Um, but really, though, throughout the whole process, there's nothing that I really, you know, besides the ears, really hate doing. Um, especially because it, it it's such a lengthy process that I'm never doing the same thing, you know, so often like I'm always doing something different too yeah I think that I would have a hard time with stepping away from it and saying okay it's done oh totally that's that's really hard to do too because man I I could be sitting there for hours just 
working on that one eye, like trying to get it perfect. Like you really got to step back and be like, either I got to look at this tomorrow or Mm -hmm. I'm just going to leave it the way it is. It's probably fine. It usually is fine, especially looking at it the next day. You're like, oh, I guess that really wasn't that bad. Yeah. That is so true. Just it's so easy to overwork it and overthink it. Being a, that happens all the time. Being a photographer, I can get that part of it because in the editing process, I feel like that finishing work is kind of what I do. And so it's at a certain point, I have to walk away from a session that I've been editing and and say, okay, I need to look at this tomorrow. And usually when I look at it the next day, I'm going, it looks great. Why do I need to do anything else? But if I had kept sitting there, I would have just kept tweaking little things here and there. Um, and it didn't need to be done. So, um, I think that's why that would be the hardest part for me is stepping away and have, and being like, it's done. It's good. It's actually great. Um, yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like you just described it perfectly. Like you could sit there infinitely trying to make it perfect, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, it really like it's it's perfect. You know, you just gotta remind yourself, like uh, you know, just look at it with fresh eyes, something yeah. like that. Okay, what is your favorite animal to um, to put together? Uh, my favorite animal to put together. So that's a good question too. I've done, I don't know how many mounts I've done. The majority of them have been deer and I love mounting deer too. I think just cause you know, I do them all the time. So every single one is just a little bit different from the yeah. next. Um, but so far my favorite mounts that I've done are um we did a couple bison heads and those were so cool they were just so big they're and massive they are yeah i didn't massive. i didn't realize how big they were actually gonna be they were almost taller than me which isn't saying much but they are just so big their hair is so long mm-hmm. that grooming them was just a whole other task in itself um and then they just look so cool too they just they're so beautiful and just you know, again, massive. Um, that was probably my favorite mount yet, just getting to work on those. And my favorite part about those was probably the grooming, just because their hair was like almost a foot long. That and, is incredible. I think of them as very, these majestic beasts. And yes. <laughs> and I, I mean, I love seeing elk. I love seeing what taxidermists do with elk. Um, I think that it's. I mean, they are also incredible and they, but it's a whole different, they're in totally different, um, playing fields. It's bison are just huge. Right. They're totally, you know, they're so different from one another too. Um, and then another thing, just them being so big, they're actually kind of easier to work on because they're so big Mm -hmm. because the details, you know, they just get bigger. So they're not like. You know, little tiny details, those actually are, like, pretty easy to work on. Like, I can actually stick my whole hand, like, in their nose kind of thing. Yeah, that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. Yeah, so, you know, that being, like, they're so fun to work on, but they're also just so big. Like, yeah. You know, like the elk, too. They're just, they're big, so they're pretty easy to work on, um, as opposed to, like, smaller animals, which are, they're just really tedious and really time-consuming because they're just so much more detail can go into them. Yeah. Um, and then I saw your, the bear, um, skull that you did 
as a um, as a euro um, skull. You you had one on your Instagram, and it was beautiful. Those teeth, it took my oh. breath away. Oh, yeah, I'm wondering which one that is, but um, yeah, for for Europeans, my favorite ones to do are bear skulls, and the reason being is just that you know it's they are just so beautiful when they come out you don't expect them i guess to necessarily look the way they do mm-hmm. between like the teeth and then you know if you've ever looked into a bear skull after it's been beetle cleaned and the reason i say beetle cleaned is because inside the nasal cavity i I think probably the only way to really get that clean is to have beetles do it because the nose bones are so fine. They're so small because bears have such a great sense of smell that it is almost like it almost doesn't even look real just because of how um, intricate that bone is. To yeah, look you'd, at. you'd tear it apart trying to do it by hand. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've never tried to do a bear skull by hand, but I don't think I would be very successful mm-hmm. in keeping that contained. Like, uh, so bear schools are my favorite ones to Euro mount. Um, they're not any maybe easier or harder than just a regular skull, but I just think they look so cool when they come out. Like, just and they still look so like um, like a like a bear. They don't look um, like any daintier or anything right. like that. They still look you know kind of mean or kind of you know. They're still a bear right. after they've been cleaned. Right. I loved it. I loved seeing it. I, I showed a friend of mine and they went, whoa, <laughs> that is so cool. Um, and I, I agreed because it kind of, it takes you back um, just a little bit. It's not necessarily the size. It's the detail of it. That's it, the detail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, tell me, how has it been being a woman in taxidermy? So being a woman in taxidermy, um, I think specifically just being a woman in it, I think the thing that I get the most is that people are kind of shocked to hear that I do taxidermy. Yeah. That's definitely surprising to people also because I'm a young women too um and then I kind of look young too I got like a baby face so I look like I'm young I look like I'm younger than I am and it's not something that you don't like yeah you don't think women do taxidermy Mm -hmm. if you think of a taxidermist I'm definitely not the person you think of right um so I think it's just a little shocking to people um just me being a woman but also I think it's, um, I think it's just really cool that I'm able to do something that traditionally women don't really do. Um, I think I, I'm proud of myself for that because I just kind of do whatever I want to do, regardless if it's a guy's thing or a girl's thing. Like I want to do taxidermy, so I'm going to do taxidermy. Good for I you. Never, I never uh, thought in my head like, oh man, like that's kind of, you know, that's more of a guy's thing. Maybe I'll find something more that women do. Like never, ever has that ever crossed my mind. Good. Um, I know I just, there, there aren't many of you out there. Um, I, I think that, I think that this podcast will reach a couple and I think that you guys will definitely bond together <laughs> very quickly. Um, and so I'm glad that we're getting to chat 
right now and that people will be able to listen. Um, because just like, just like I have not had a woman to be able to kind of walk behind and actually physically have a relationship who, who hunts until this year, who lives near me. Like I just didn't have it. Um, I think it's even more so for you guys, um, in your field. So I'm excited that people are going to be able to hear this and be like, Oh, that's cool. Because it's not just, you're not just boning out and like, you're not just doing the gross, like it's not gross. It is an art. It is a pure art form and not many people can do it. Yeah, absolutely. It's an art. Um, you know, I consider myself an artist for doing what I do. Yes. Um, I hope that I can connect with more women taxidermists too. I've, I mean, I know a handful of girls who do it just kind of because I know a lot of taxidermists, period. Mm-hmm. So I know girls who do it too. But of course, like, I hope that if there's any girls that are thinking like, man, I really want to get into taxidermy, but that's not something girls do. Well, no, like that's definitely something girls do. It's just, you know, if you're a girl and you do it, then you're a girl who does it. Like that's, that's how simple it can be. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm hoping and I'm, and I'm going to have you in just a second, tell people how they can reach you because if there is anybody out there who's like, that would be something I would love to do, but I don't know how to get started. Um, they can, they can send you a message and say, how do I get started? And you can say, this is how, um, and, and you can be a resource for them. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, so go ahead and do that for me real quick. How can people get in touch with you? Um, absolutely. So if anybody has any questions, you know, girl, whoever you are, definitely you can reach out to me. Because I wish I had more resources, mm-hmm. you know, when I first started out too. Um, so definitely, you can reach me through Instagram. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. If I don't know you personally, um, my Instagram it's Ashley dot Eve A S H L E Y dot E V E, and that's the best way you can get a hold of me is through that. Um, because I would love to be able to answer questions, and of course, I'll answer any questions that I can. I may not have all the answers, but I can try. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, our hunting community doesn't just stop at hunting. It goes out further. It goes out to guiding. It goes out to, um, to taxidermist. It goes, it encompasses so many different groups, but mentorship falls in, in all of it. And so being able to be a couple steps ahead of somebody and be able to walk them through the things that you've been through that might not have worked and, or might have worked better. And you could say, Hey, this is how this would work better. This would be easier. Um, don't do this. I really learned a hard lesson on that. Um, we all need that. Absolutely. Um, I've had a lot of great mentors throughout the taxidermy journey too that I couldn't be more thankful for um I think it's so important too my boss right now he's a great taxidermist and he's been an amazing mentor too like he's definitely 
been able to teach me so much as well. So I couldn't be more grateful for him. Um, and anybody, you know, whatever you want to do, I definitely encourage anybody to try to find a mentor because that is so important. Um, and maybe you don't want to work with another person, like you don't physically want to have a mentor, but just reaching out to anybody too and asking questions and mm-hmm. just, you know, knowledge is power kind of thing. Like yeah. just find somebody that you can ask any questions and be comfortable asking questions to that kind of thing. Um, man, yeah. If you want to learn something, like you really got to step out of your comfort zone too. So just being able to reach out to people, that's huge. Yeah. Well, I'm really grateful for that guy that, that said, Hey, you want this bear mounted? Come on, come learn. Um, I think that that was the pivotal moment of you finding what your passion is. And I'm very grateful for him. Oh, absolutely. Me too. He, yeah, definitely was able to kind of push me into it. Like if not for him, I, I don't know exactly if I would be doing it now. I don't know. Cause, um, but he definitely pushed me to do it and he was super encouraging and yeah, for all the people throughout my whole taxidermy journey and throughout my, you know, hunting journey, I couldn't be more thankful for all the opportunities and all the, you know, guidance I've had. Well, that's awesome. Ashley, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Um, It's been a great conversation and very, very informative. I am extremely grateful for it. Thanks so much, Amy. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I got to talk to you too. Good. Okay, you can reach Ashley on Instagram, ashley.eve, E-V-E, or you can find her over at Racks and Tracks Taxidermy on Instagram. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew with Sasquatch Fuel. If you're heading to the backcountry this season and you need some meals that don't bog you down, check out sasquatchfuel.com. Our 100% compostable packaging was designed to combat litter in the backcountry. For more information on conservation in action, head to sasquatchfuel.com. Hey guys, enter code Western Contours at checkout and save a few bucks off your order.